Well, there is good news that comes to the Breed House on Tuesdays. The good news is that dad goes grocery shopping and the ice cream has been replenished. And that should be the end of the story, right? The ice cream is in the freezer. But there's a problem. There's an edict, a law in our house. You do not eat your dinner, even on Tuesday night, you do not get ice cream. And you can just think about the tension that is in the house on Tuesdays. But dad, the ice cream is here. Yes, the reality of the ice cream is here, but the edict is also in place. Today in our passage in Esther chapter 8, we are also going to live in a great tension. Justice for Haman has occurred. Mordecai has taken his place. And as much as that is good news, there is still an edict out there that the people of Israel should be killed. And the next three chapters, specifically chapter 8, are going to reveal this tension. And chapter 8 is raising a good question for us today. Here we are, we sing praises of Jesus' victory. We say he has come. The fridge has been stocked. But the reality is around us, there is corruption. There's death. There's pain. What do we do with that? What do we do with that tension of singing praises about Jesus' inauguration, that he has defeated death, that he has been resurrected, that we live in that kingdom? At the same time, we live in this time where we see, evidently, death, and pain, and tension. The book of Esther gives us hope in this time. It gives us hope because it makes us realize we're not out of the ordinary. There is hope when we live in this tension. So let's see what Esther chapter 8 has to say. It's a longer passage that I'm going to read. Please pay attention as I read God's word. It's a fun story, so follow along as best you can, and then we'll explain the text. Esther chapter 8. On that day, King Azarius gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite. 
and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, If it please the king, if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters um, devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Azarius said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. So the king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each provinces, province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Azarius, and sealed it with a king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Azarius, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes, a blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. The word of the Lord. We're just joining us. We've been going through the book of Esther. And this book of Esther is a book about God's providence, that he works. Even though we are situated a thousand miles away from Jerusalem. Even though there is no temple, there's no Israelite army, there's no Israelite king. Even though there is none of that, God is still working. And we've seen a reluctant Esther, one that has been reluctant to speak up, we see a transformation in her. 
she admits, yes, I am an Israelite. And she sees the way that God has worked in this. That God has put her as queen. He's made King Xerxes, Azarius, have a restless night. And remind Azarius that Mordecai did a great thing. Even though there's an edict to destroy the Israelites, she goes to the king's palace into his presence, even risking her life. And we've seen the king has accepted her. And then she's spoken up and Haman has received justice. And then we see that Mordecai is replaced for Haman. And we see that he now reigns in Haman's palace. It seems like everything has gone very well. And the truth is, after I read verse 2, I'm ready for the credits to roll. I'm ready for the script to say, the end. And you might have thought that after we read chapter 7 and we saw Haman hanging upon the gallows. Justice is done. It's over. But guess what? There are three more chapters in this book. Is this just the way the Old Testament works? Just an addendum at the end of the book? Is it just the way it works that they have long credits at the end of movies? Is that what the last three chapters are about? No, we still see that there is an edict out there. Among the 127 provinces, from Ethiopia to India, an edict has been announced that all the women and children and all the Israelites shall be killed and all their things shall be plundered. And it's going to happen in nine months still. Sure, Esther and Mordecai might be safe in the citadel, but the people still live in jeopardy. Sure, the major battle might have been won. Haman might have been hanging upon the gallows. And Mordecai is now the second in command and rules in Susa, the capital of Persia. But still, there are things left to be done. And there is a problem out there. Where's my Lord of the Rings fans? Lord of the Rings fans out there? Yeah, yeah. Where's the people that read the books and not just see the movies? Yeah, there they are. Yeah, some of you are there, yeah. The, the, the prideful people, right? I read the books too, right? Well, if you read the books, you know that there's a chapter in The Return of the King that is not put in the movie. The nine hours or extended version, 12 hours of the movie, you think they would be able to fit it all in, but there's still a chapter that's not in there. And the chapter that's left out is a chapter called The Scouring of the Shire. And what happens is, after the hobbits, and Frodo has thrown the ring in the fire, and then they have been elevated, and they've uh, gotten to the place where um, everything seems to be going really well, Frodo and Sam and Merry and Pippin, they return back to the Shire. Right? This is what's in the book, right? You know this we're talking about? And guess what? You would think the Shire was fine, right? The victory's been done. The ring has been thrown in. But guess what? There is still problems in the Shire. 
Saruman is still there. He's influenced the hobbits, and there's been all these problems in the Shire. And we see in this chapter, at the end of the book, Return of the King, that Sam and Mary and Pippin and Frodo, they lead a rebellion against Saruman. And they free the Shire. See, even though the war had been won, there was still a remnant of corruption. And that's what Tolkien is trying to communicate. And that's what we see in the last chapters of Esther. The major battle has been won. But still, evil has not been eradicated. The kingdom has been inaugurated, but it has not been consummated. There is still a period of time of tension. And I'm going to argue to you this morning, and I hope you're paying attention here. These chapters of Esther, the Lord of the, the, Lord of the Rings, that last chapter, do you know what they're communicating to us? That we too live in that age. The age where Christ has been inaugurated. The king has come. He has resurrected. But still, we live in a place where that has not totally been fulfilled. There has not been a consummation of it. And if you read the Gospels or read the epistles, you realize that people in those times also are living in that tension. They're saying, wait, I thought when Christ came back that everything would be fine. But Christ says, I came to usher in the kingdom. The kingdom has come. It's already, but guess what? Not yet. I will come again to consummate it. And the problem is in the early church, some people thought the kingdom was already consummated. They say, it's already all good. Everything's fine. We don't have sin anymore. Everything's great. But again, Paul and Peter respond to the early church and say, no, we live in the already, but the not yet. You know, that might sound very theological. I might have lost some of you in that idea of already and not yet, of inauguration and consummation. But I hope it shows you that it helps us today think through this. We live in an age of that tension. As Christians, we celebrate our freedom from sin, victory in Christ, the church and its influence over the past 2,000 years. But as much as we still we celebrate that, we still see what's happening in our world. Corruption, sin, death. And how do we respond in that tension? For some of us, it causes despair. For some of us, apathy. For some of us, anger. And what we try to do is we try to initiate the kingdom ourselves. 
I feel like what we're experiencing right now with the pandemic and racial tensions, it just is moving the volume level to 11. That we are living in that tension even more and you see us as the church struggling. You see people out there struggling. How can Christ have inaugurated and how can it still be so bad? It's because we live in this tension of time. So what will Esther do? I think chapter 8 through 10 might help us in this tension. And it might give us some hope as we live in the age that we live in right now. So, we have seen in this book of Esther, her boldness grow. She's realized her identity. And then, because she's realized her identity, says, I belong to the covenant people of God, she goes before the king, even though it might cost her her life. And then she accuses Haman, which is even more boldness, the number two guy in charge. And then she comes before the king with Mordecai and establishes Mordecai to take the house of Haman. Now we see her boldness even grow larger in chapter 8. Now she comes before the king, not asking just for herself or for Mordecai. She asks for her people. What? She asked him to change a law that he issued to the whole kingdom. That is bold. How does Esther get to a place where at one moment... Just a couple months earlier, she thought the only thing she could do is help Mordecai not to grieve anymore, and now she goes before the king to change a royal policy, the God-King Xerxes. I think we see that Esther has this boldness because she's seen that God is faithful and he works providentially. She's seen God work. She's believed the promises of her people. She's seen what it's done to Xerxes. She's seen Haman killed. She's seen um, Mordecai receive the signet ring and take the palace. And now she lives in that inauguration of God's kingdom and his promises. You know where I'm going, right? Shouldn't we have the same boldness as Esther? Shouldn't we live in that same way as she did? I'm ready for kickback, ready? Well, if I was in Esther's situation and I saw all that God had done, you know what? I, I would be bold enough to go to Governor Evers and say, you can take this mask mandate and you can, Right? Here's the thing. Let me remind you about this book. This book does not use the name of God once in the whole book. It doesn't use the name of God because it's saying that God doesn't exist. 
No, it's a purposeful choice by the author to say, even though God might seem distant, even though you might not see him, even though there's no supernatural miracles in this story, God is still working providentially. And here we have Esther on the other side of the cross, before the cross, before the resurrection. She doesn't have the word of God. She doesn't have the testimony of the resurrection. She doesn't have 2,000 2000 years of testimony of the church. She doesn't have any of that stuff, but she still lives in the power that she belongs to the people of God. And here we are on the other side of the cross. We have his word. We have the resurrection. We have 2,000 years of the church having a major effect upon the world. But still, what do we do? We doubt God's providence. We can't see him. I don't know where he is. But we have more than she ever did. And many of us don't live 1% of her courage. But if we realize the kingdom that we now live in, the inauguration of King Jesus, it might make us take bold steps. Maybe steps towards reconciliation with someone that we're refusing to reconcile with. Maybe humbleness in our marriage. That we would humble ourselves and say, I am wrong. I need to work on this. Maybe it would give us the courage to go out of our way to love our neighbor. To even sacrifice our money and our time for others. That we would take the steps that we realize the inauguration of the kingdom. Well, even though Esther goes boldly to the king, there is a problem. I've hinted at it already, but let me make it more clear to you. Verse 8. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. See, the king Xerxes has now communicated to Esther and Mordecai, yes, you can plead for your people, but the edict that I made that in nine months the people of Israel will be killed cannot be taken back. It cannot be revoked. So what he's saying is, Mordecai, now you have the signet ring, you can create a new edict. And that's what we see in this large section. The same thing that was said in chapter 3 and sent out to all of the provinces about the destruction of the Jews, even the same language, now is sent out to all the provinces again. And this time it said the Jews can defend themselves. Here are now two edicts that are out there. And this new edict is good news that instead of death, there could be justice. And there can be proclamation of hope. 
where if you're a good critical thinker, you might be asking yourselves, how can the God King Xerxes, that has so much power, why can't he simply just reverse his edict? There's lots of speculation about this. It might be the very nature of being a king, that laws are set, you can't reverse it. If you're a good lawyer or no law, you could maybe call it stare decisis. The idea that once a precedent has been set in legal motion, it can't simply be changed. And that might be happening in the ancient world. Maybe King Xerxes is too proud that he will not humble himself to change the edict. Maybe it's, that it, it's too much work once it's been sent out to all the provinces to change it. We don't really know why exactly it's that way, but I do think it can give us a principle, an idea, a concept. So let's take the magnifying glass off Esther and let's look at the Bible as a whole. Let's zoom out a little bit. And realize this kind of principle is true in God's word. There was an edict that was sent at the creation of the world. The edict worked like this. Adam and Eve, if you disobey, you will surely die. Adam and Eve disobeyed. And because of that, they died. And all of humanity, all of the people that came from them have now been a part of that fallen humanity. They too are in sin, in disobedience with God. And that edict is in place. And you might say, well, can't God just reverse the decree? Here's the thing. A perfect and holy God can't coexist with corruption and sin. There needs to be justice. A debt needs to be paid. There is a rule in our house. If you take someone's ice cream, you owe them some back. If Caroline takes Claire's ice cream, she owes her ice cream back. But what if she came to me and said, Dad, I'm not giving it back. Dropped your edict. Drop that law. Guess what? Then Claire would have to pay the debt. That part of her ice cream is gone, and she's not going to get the amount of ice cream that she was given. Someone is paying the debt. You see, the edict from the beginning of God's word is what we call the covenant of works. Sin results in separation from God. If you obey, you'll be okay. If you don't, there's separation. And then that separation happened. But then God put a new edict in place. What we call the covenant of grace. And what it said is there, there would be one to pay the debt. 
there would be one that would take the punishment of our sin. And even from the beginning, God starts showing us that promise. That one day, the heel would be bruised from the serpent. A forerunner to Jesus, the Old Testament points to that covenant of grace. And then there was an inauguration of that covenant through Jesus' death and resurrection. And now we live in the age where we look at his inauguration. That we live with that edict too. The edict of that covenant of grace. So here's the thing. Let's zoom back into Esther. Esther is showing us a glimpse of these two edicts in place, right? In this chapter, we live in the nine months when the two edicts are out there. The death to the Israelites and life to the Israelites, their defense. In the same way, we live in an age of good news. Jesus has come to those who trust in him. Yet for those who are sinners, do not trust in him, there is death. And we live in this time of tension until it will all be found out in the consummation. And here the Israelites in these nine months they live in this tension. What is going to happen on this day? And this is what I find so fascinating. If you tuned out, please come back. This is what's really good about this passage. That even though the Israelites live in this tension, they, and they don't even see Physically, maybe they live in India or Ethiopia long, long ways away. They know that Mordecai, he sits in the citadel and reigns. And because of that, they trust that in nine months there will be good news. And what do they do in these nine months? The Jews had light and gladness and joy, and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king commands and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews. Even in the tension to know what would happen on that day, instead of being sad like we saw when the first edict came out in chapter 3, they now live in light and gladness and joy because they know that the consummation will come and the promises will come true and there will be victory. Okay, maybe you see where I'm going. It begs the question for us. How do we respond in the age of inauguration with these two edicts out there? 
How do we respond? I'm going to give two ways I've seen people respond in our age. Here is one very popular response. I'm going to call it the King Xerxes response. And the King Xerxes response is basically, I transcend these edicts. I issue them. It doesn't affect me. We'll see what happens. I don't care. I think this is the predominant worldview I hear today. And it's so ingrained in us, and those who are around, we don't even see it. This week, I was listening to All Things Considered. Are you guys NPR fans? I'm an NPR fan. I like All Things Considered. And I got to listen to a Nigerian uh, writer, a fiction writer. She was on, and there was kind of an interview, a question and answer kind of thing about her book. And I heard one thing that came out of her mouth. And this is what she said. She said, there are multiple metaphysical realities that we can all live in as people. As long as we don't interfere with other people's realities, we are fine. And I was expecting the interviewer to maybe question her on this idea. Like, this is a crazy thought. But it just kind of was like, oh yeah. It wasn't even questioned. And I thought about it. I said, you know, I have a metaphysical reality myself. And my metaphysical reality is this, that there is no gravity. And I teach my kids, guess what? There is no gravity. What if I lived in that metaphysical reality? And I climbed on top of this roof and jumped off. Would the interviewer and this writer say, guess what? That's fine. You're living in your metaphysical reality. And because what you believe is true, then you will not fall when you jump because you believe gravity does not exist. That is ridiculous. But I hear this over and over again in our age. See, it is either God's edict that his son, Jesus, actually lived died on the cross and rose from the dead, and because of that, all the sin and death of this world is going to be vanquished when he comes again. Either that is true or it is not. And just believe, just because I don't believe it's true doesn't mean it's not going to happen. And guess what? A lot of these people that are living in Persia at this time, what does it say? They see that the Jews, they live in joy and hope because they, they, they believe it's going to happen. They know it's going to happen. And guess what they, go, they do? They go, wait a second. God is working through these people. His providence is true. And what do they do? They fear the Jews. 
And some would argue that they then become part of the covenant people because they go, it's going to happen. Well, I've just bashed one reality. It was basically called a postmodern idea. Why don't I attack the other side, shall we? Maybe that one made some of you uncomfortable. Maybe this other one will make some of you others uncomfortable. A couple weeks ago, I listened to a sermon uh, written by a British theologian, spoken by a British theologian. It's about a 30-year-old sermon. And he was lamenting as Great Britain was becoming more secular, removing itself away from God, that more and more of the conservatives in Britain were lamenting that the British Empire had lost its power. And their hope and their edict was that we would bring back the nostalgia of British Empire or British power back into Britain. And that would be the hope for the British people. Note, this was said 30 years ago. And it made me wonder, as we become more secular here in the United States, what edict do we think will bring true hope? I've heard a lot of edicts over the past four years. And those edicts sound a lot like, I wish Britain was the way it used to be. Is that our hope? Is that what we cling to as Christians? That our nation would be great again? Church, I wonder. I wonder as we live in this time between inauguration and consummation, do we live with the same hope as the people of God in Persia in these nine months? Do we live with joy and gladness because we know that Jesus holds the signet ring? He is sitting enthroned in the kingdom of God, sitting next at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, saying, guess what? My kingdom has been inaugurated, and I will come again, and I will consummate it. Do we live in that joy? Do we live in that hope? Do we live in that gladness? I do wonder as I look around in this time if we do. You know, Tuesday night is a night of gladness and joy and hope in our house, even with my edict that says if you don't eat your meal, you won't get dessert. Do you know why it's good news? Because Uncle Clint comes over to eat with us on Tuesday night. 
And do you know why it's good news that Uncle Clint comes? Because if you don't eat your meal, he will. <laughs> Christian, there is good news for you. Jesus has come to eat with us. And he has taken on our sin. He has put it upon himself on the cross. That he would say, guess what? The feast is here for you. Live in that joy. Live in that gladness. Let us rejoice together as the church. We live in that age. And one day, it will be consummated. And we will see it fully.